You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kivalevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. What I want to do today is I want to do an introduction to um, Brisker Learning, but I want to try to frame Brisker Learning not as an internally purely lumdish enterprise, but rather as an effort to engage in a philosophic enterprise as well. To some extent, that does a little bit of violence to Brisk, which in a certain sense sees itself as an anti-philosophic enterprise. And to some extent, I think it's the fulfillment of what it is. Uh, but we're going to do, right, so I want to begin uh, with a liturgical um, opening, just to make a point about how certain kind of topics are reasonable to think about in liturgical context. And then I'm going to move into uh, the beginnings of an analysis of a just a short Talmudic sugya. And then I'm going to move to a longer Talmudic sugya, and we're going to start trying to impose brisker meaning on that on that context and see how it ties into a philosophic question. I'll try and monitor the chat throughout, and I'll also try and stop and uh, stop and take questions uh, during it. If you're not in the process of asking a question, then it'd be appreciated if you would mute yourself. Okay, so I want to start from just liturgically. We open, we wake up in the morning, and we say, So the point I want to make is that there's an I there, and the I is a body, right? The I is not a, the I is not a mind or a soul, right? The I is the body that the neshama is placed into. And similarly, we say, right? So both of these seem to work with at least a kind of dualism. I'm going to argue that really that we're going to end up with a trialism, which is body, mind, and soul. And it should be clear that the body has personality for these purposes. And the, the question I want to move to is to think about what the, uh, who the acting subject is in the case of mitzvot. Is the acting subject some kind of overarching person, body, mind, and soul? Or is the acting subject just the soul, just the mind? Uh, mind is a big fuzzy term. Um, or just the body. And I want to try and present analyses of the... Uh, okay, everyone's still fine. Okay. Um, okay. So let's let's go back. Sorry, I think... The last word that I heard from you is... The last word that I heard from you was that we're going to end up with a, the trialism. Mind, ah, body, okay, and soul. Okay, sorry. So yeah, something, something went wrong in the middle. Okay, so... There's body, mind, and soul. I want to talk about who the subject is of mitzvot. Is the subject of the mitzvah a, the body, the mind, or the soul? And I want to use the analysis of the, of the word kavanah as a window into, this, uh, in, right, into, into that question and hopefully demonstrate that brisker learning is engaged in many ways in the same kind of enterprise as analytic philosophy. Right, and that they're thinking like a brisker is very much thinking like an analytic, analytic philosopher. And sometimes you're thinking like them and the questions overlap. And sometimes you're thinking like them and the questions don't overlap. So here's our base sugya. Right, the base sugya is, Ayakareba Torah, right? You're reading, you're reading the Torah. V'yigiyah zman ha-mikra. And the time comes, and we assume that zman ha-mikra means the time comes to read Kriyat Shema. So im kivain libo yatsa. Okay, so now there's this thing called a heart. Right, you're supposed to direct the heart, and we interpret that as meaning that the um, right that you're supposed to have a certain kind of mental intention. So im right? So you're reading Torah. It comes time for Kriyashma. So you're yotze if you engage in this enterprise called kavanah. 
this mission, unlike the other kinds, don't have don't have the reverse side of that. If you're not nechavin, you're not yotze. But we assume that's implicit. Okay. So now the Gemara says, Shmamina, let's derive from this Mishnah, mitzvot srichot kavana. In other words, what the Gemara says is that the kavana mentioned in our Mishnah here, this inkivenli bo, is generalizable to the broad right to the broad category of mitzvot, right? Because we're saying that if you can um, Right, that, that um, from the fact that we require kavanah here, we require kavanah on all mitzvot. Okay, then the Gemara says, no, mayim kivain libo, maybe it's not no even, right? The Gemara says, what do we mean by kivain libo? And the answer is to read. Okay, so now the issue is, right, so that reading is a kriyachma specific form of kavanah. It's not generalizable to all form of mitzvot. So we could say, that right, we could say that uh, all we're saying here is that we say mitzvot srichot kavanah, we mean this kind of kavanah, and we're defining the kind of kavanah we have. Or we could say you thought you could derive from your mitzvot srichot kavanah, but actually kivain libo is not the same thing, right? Is not the same thing as the kavanah that is implied in the broad statement mitzvot srichot kavanah. Then the Gemara says, hang on a sec, mitzvot, my right? You said in kivain libo likrot. But he's reading already. Now the assumption of that statement is that if right is that um, there's no way to simultaneously portray a person as reading and as not having right and as not having intention to read, right? Because that's the, that's the nature of the uh, that's the nature of the question. The nature of the question is how can you say that the necessary kavana is to read, but he's reading? And the response is bikorei lahagia, right? Which Translate literally as you're reading in order to proofread. So I'm presenting this sugya as follows. Okay, so we start off we start off by reading the Mishnah as saying that Kriyachma requires a general the kind of kavana we require to move you from being a um, move you from being a koreba Torah to fulfilling the mitzvah of Kriyachma. Right, the kind of kavana we're requiring is a generic kind of kavana that is applicable to all mitzvot, and that's how we can derive from here, the mitzvot srichot kavanah, whatever the kavanah is that is necessary to transfer you from a, a, Torah, a Torah reader to a Kriyat Shema fulfiller, that's the kind of kavanah that we could require in all mitzvot. Then we say, no, maybe not. Maybe the kind of kavanah we mean here is a very specific kind of kavanah, the krot, and that's not generalizable. I think says, hang on a sec, that's incoherent, right? You can't say require the krot and also, and also the kakari, um, right? And the, the, and the response is, no, there is a way in which you can in practice, be reading and still not be um, and still not um, not have intention to read, and that's when you read the proofread. Okay, that's our first level of the sugya. Now I'm going to read the sugya together with Rashi. Okay, so here's right. You can see that Rashi is inserted in uh, different t- type fonts, so you can see how Rashi reads the sugya. So Rashi tells you what does that mean. That you have to have kavana l'shem mitzvot. Okay, so I could have had all sorts of ideas about what the kavana I need to, that is necessary to turn me from a transform me from a regular Torah reader to a kriyashma thing. Rashi says what it needs is I have to be doing it for the sake of the mitzvah. And then Rashi has another piece of information. He says, and this is this is a challenge to Rabbah, who says somewhere else that if you blow shofar with musical intent, you're yotze. Right, so Rashi says that 
if we require Kavanah to turn you from a Torah reader into a Kriyat Shema reader, then it can't be that blowing shofar, that blowing, that blowing shofar with musical intent is enough to make you a, uh, it's enough to make you Yotzei the Mitzvah of Shofar. Why? Because Rashi thinks the generalizable Kavanah we require is intent for the sake of the Mitzvah. All right, now the dialogue makes sense. So Rashi says, the Gemara answers this. No, it doesn't prove that because Mayim Kivet Libo Likrot. But now we have another thing. I have a Letzei Mitzvah, but to fulfill the Mitzvah, Right, so in order to fulfill the mitzvah, now we think you don't need any kavana l'shem mitzvos. You just need kavana likrod b'torah b'alma. Okay, the Gemara says, same question, how can you do that? Right, what's there? And the answer is, Now you don't even intend to read. Okay, so how do we read the sugi now? So we say, our initial idea is that Kriyat Shema requires the generalizable form of Kavana that applies to all mitzvot, which is Kavana L'Shem Mitzvot. And we claim that that's actually a dispute because Rabbah says elsewhere that Shofar does not require Kavana L'Shem Mitzvot. So the answer is, right, the answer is no, because here, actually, the mission is not requiring Kavana L'Shem Mitzvot. It's, it's not even requiring Kavana L'Shem Mitzvot. It's just requiring Kavana L'Kru Torah and then the answer is somewhat proofreading doesn't even arise to the level of the Kroh Torah Balma. So let's take a look at what we have framed. So far, we have out of this sugya, we have five possible stages of intent. We have Kavana Latzet HaMitzvah. And we have Kavana L'Shem HaMitzvot. So the first question I asked you, is there a difference between the first two? And the answer is, that I think there is. Kavana Latzet HaMitzvot means I have to have intention to fulfill an obligation, which means I don't know, I don't only need intent to perform this religious act, I need to intend to perform this religious act for the sake of, right, out of duty. As opposed to Kavanah L'Shem Mitzvah, which might not depend on my intending to fulfill a duty, it might just intend on my intending, depend on my intending to perform a religious act, at least a formalizable religious act. Then we have Kavanah L'Krut Batorah Alma just intent to read the Torah as opposed to intent to read. They may not be the same thing because in one way, I'm aware that I'm reading a religious document and in the other way, I'm not, right? I might not be aware of what I'm reading at all. I could just be sounding it out. And then there's another stage where I am engaging in the same activity, apparently, but I don't have any intention to engage in that activity. My intention is simply to check that the text is accurate and I am not right. And in order to do so, it ends up that I vocalize sufficiently. At least that's the way I'm, I'm reading the text. Okay, so let's play this back into our philosophic notion. If you require, if you think that Karel Hagia is sufficient, so that seems to suggest that all we require is the body. Right? The body has to perform this act. And even when the act is an act as inherently intellectual as reading, all that matters is that my body engage in the activity of vocalization. Right? We could, right? We could, for um, example, right? You know, come up with a case. What happens if there's somebody who doesn't know that what they're reading is Hebrew? All they're doing is, all they're doing is, is, um, is following a, um, a list, phonetic things. Let's say, right? When I was a kid, I had a lisp. Probably still do to, you know, to some extent. It wasn't my 
speech therapy wasn't entirely um, successful. So you had to pronounce all sorts of sounds as a way of, of improving your enunciation. So let's suppose that somebody is given an enunciation test that happens to correspond perfectly well to Shema Yisrael Hashem Elokeinu Hashem Echad instead of the rain in Spain falls mainly in the plain. So if you think Karei Lagia is, um, is sufficient, so then all you need is the body. The maskana of this sugya appears to be that no one thinks Karei Lagia is sufficient. Everyone thinks that some form of intention beyond just the body producing these sounds is enough. Right, so one possibility is you have to have intention to read, and that's enough. One possibility is you have to know that you're reading Torah, and that's enough. One possibility is that you um, is that you have to know that you're reading Torah for the sake, let's suppose, of this mitzvah, though not necessarily. It could be you just have to know that you're fulfilling some kind of mitzvah, not just you're reading Torah. Or it could be you need to have kavanah to specifically, right, to fulfill a specific obligation. Right, those are five layers of kavana that we have. Any right, so one of them, right, we could say one of them, karel hagia, right. If that's if that were sufficient, which at this stage nobody does, say if that's sufficient, all you need is a body. The next stage, kavana likrot, right, might mean that all we we require a directed body. But at the end of the day, all we need is right. All we need is that for the body to be directed, as opposed to for the body, um, to right for the body to, for there to be spiritual intent. We might say. This is enough if you have your mind involved. Okay, and there's a, the Torah is on the stage further because now you have to know not just that you're reading, but you have to know what you're reading to a certain extent. Right, and then, right, so, but we're still in the mind. And then we move up to the soul, right? You have to have kind of the shame mitzvah or the seta mitzvah, right? Those are all intentions, right? They go beyond understanding. They go, right, they go, in, they go into religious will. And so we could say that the top two layers are engaged in the soul and so what this sugya is the way the sugya moves us to is it's is the question is do we require the soul to be involved in the mitzvah and the answer is no we only require the mind but everyone agrees the body is insufficient however we could also point out that here we're dealing with the specific activity of right of reading reading is inherent might, might it might be as inherently an activity associated with the mind and it might be that if we were engaged in another kind of activity let's say waving a palm branch around so then we would know we wouldn't require the mind's involvement at all and all that we require for a mitzvah is the body okay that's my reading of the um, first sugya what i want to point out is there are at least two kinds of kavana that are not even discussed in the sugya i'd like to just jump in for one second sure. uh, if that's okay um you're consistently translating likrot as to read. Uh-huh. In the ancient world, uh, likrot generally was to recite. Um, and so it's less clear the, the jump from reading, which we have as a silent mental activity, as you know, is a modern thing. Um, but there's a very, it's, it's much clearer uh, to think of recitation as a purely bodily activity, which you could do, uh, as we all know from davening, uh, without any engagement of your mind or your soul. So we should certainly clarify that I meant, I mean, reading out loud and not reading silently. And then the question is, can you engage in recitation as a mindless activity? That's a really interesting notion. 
Uh, you can engage in it without any awareness of what you're reading. Right? Can you engage? Oh no, that's that's not true. Uh, you 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 vastly underestimate the degree of irreligiosity that I have. I'm perfectly capable of reciting something out loud, knowing that I'm reciting something and paying no attention to it whatsoever. Um, okay, so right, so you know, so you're putting in a, a you know, like another, and that's not just me. The Gemara talks about that. You know, the person's lips are moving against the wall, and uh, and lava date. Yeah. So, so you're telling me uh, what I haven't put in in any real sense is consciousness, as opposed to right. It was, it's an intellectual activity. Uh, it's as though I'm it. fidgeting. Pardon? It's though I'm fidgeting with my with my with my vocal organs. Okay, that's an interesting idea. I'll, let's take it under advisement for now. Um, I want to point out the two things I left off this list were, one is, I might argue that, that the Mitzvah of Kriyat requires a, a kavana, which is not just a, to fulfill this mitzvah, but it requires a kind of religious state, which is Kabbalat Ol Malchut That's a possibility for the soul that doesn't make it into the sugya. I have to be aware that I'm accepting the kingdom of heaven. And then there's also an intellectual content which has been mentioned, which is I do I have to know what the words mean? All right. So we we have five different um, levels of intention in the sugya, and they don't mention, and there are at least two that are unmentioned. So really, there are at least there are at least seven kinds of kavana. I guess we could talk about down to you know that um, in, that you could, or seven stages of of relationship between things of between yourself and the physical action. Okay, and that just comes out of this one so yeah what i want to argue is that right that this is the beginnings of a brisker analysis which is we're trying to take what looks like a single term the term kavana and we're trying to think of all the possible conceptual meanings it can have and then we're going to start breaking down the kinds of categories right so i already said that right kavana let's say to mitzvah those are both kavanas of the soul Kavanah the Krot and the Krot Torah Alma, those are both Kavanot of the mind. And Kareh seems to be a product of the body. Um, and we'll see that there's a category below Kareh Lagia. Okay, so let's move on now to a, um, to a more complicated sugya. Okay, so the, um, the sugya we're going to address here is a sugya in Rosh Hashanah. Okay, then we'll see that the sugya we did before was a, a stub, as Wikipedia would put it, right? It wasn't actually a sugi that was intended to live on its own. What it was is a, um, what it was is a, uh, a just a, a, a partial breakdown of, a, of, a, of another, um, another sugi. So here's, here's a Mishnah. The Mishnah says, Somebody who is passing behind Shul. Or his house is close to Shul. And he listens and he hears from outside Shul, he hears the Shofar, or he hears the Megillah. So here the Mishnah says, if he has Kavana, he's Yotze. If he doesn't have Kavana, he's not Yotze. Even though both parties engage in the same activity, Right, so here we have another kind of Kavana. This Kavana, right, is an interesting thing because listening is something that can happen against your will. Right, you can hear something, but you don't have the capacity to prevent yourself, uh, prevent yourself from, um, right, from hear, from hearing, um, from hearing. So that means, right here, we want to show that up till now, all the uh, all the forms, all the forms of kavanah we've been discussing, 
are relate what I call related to the gavra, right? In what sort of situation? What is the mental condition of the person? And here we're starting to move towards maybe kavana plays a different role with different kinds of activities. Because I can argue, which already started saying maybe kavana plays a different role in speaking than it does for other things, because speaking is to a certain extent intellectual activity, but maybe it's not, because maybe speaking is just the production of sounds. But hearing is certainly a space where the action could happen whether I willed it or not. And so we can say, okay, for hearing, I certainly require kavanah. And the question is, what sort of kavanah do we require here, right? All the issues we have here, they have to have require kavanah to fulfill the mitzvah, they have to have kavanah, do I have to be aware it's a mitzvah? Do I have to be aware that it's a shofar, right? All those issues will come up. Okay, then the Mishnah segues into what looks like an, you know, an irrelevant agatic sugya and uh, Dr. Walfish has a marvelous explanation of this, which I no longer remember. So I'm going to give you my shallower explanation, which matters for us. Right? It gets in the, the agatha about Moshe and at, at the war of Amalek. And Moshe, when Moshe raises his hands, the Jews win. And Moshe lowers his hands, Amalek wins. The Gemara says, do the hands of Moshe do war or break war? No. As long as the Jews looked up, and they subordinate their hearts to their father in heaven, then they would win. And if not, then they would lose. And they tell you the same story about the copper snake. So this is a difficult, this is a different relationship because here we're talking about, it's not, it's not, it seems, right? It's not that you have to, that when you, when Moshe lifts his hands, he has to lift his hands with the intention of looking up towards heaven. And it's not that the Jews have to look towards Moshe's hands with the intention of subordinating their souls to heaven, it's that the action of Moshe raising his hands is efficacious only if it results in the spiritual condition of the Jews, uh, right, of the Jews subordinating their, um, their, their hearts to heaven. Now, we have to be careful. This is not a mitzvah, right? Moshe was not commanded to, fulfill, to raise his hands to heaven. But the juxtaposition of this with the previous statement suggests that, um, at least suggests the possibility that sometimes what we require of mitzvot is not just that you want it to do something, but you actually, it actually has to accomplish that. Otherwise, you haven't fulfilled the mitzvah. Okay, so that's our background. And now we're going to go into the Gemara itself. So the Gemara says, just for those of you who haven't learned Gemara with me before, so I often, what I often do is I put Tanitic sources in bold, and I underline Amoraic sources. And I put um, Sukim in italics, and I put Rashi in a different font so that you can, we, can, we can see the different layers of the discussion. So they send a message to Shmuel's father. If he was compelled to eat matzah on the first night of Pesach, so then he has fulfilled his obligation. Okay. So now this is a really interesting thing because if someone compels me to eat matzah, so now what is my intention? So it depends. Sometimes people compel me to do something that that I really wanted to do all along. Sometimes people compel me to do something about which I am neutral. And sometimes people compel me to do something that is, um, right, that is very much against my will. Right? So so Ravashi comes along and he explains that what, Kafu means kafuhu parsim, that a group of Persians came and compelled a Jew to eat matzah on the first night of Pesach. Now, I have to say that I am 
I've never been able to figure out what it is that would motivate a Persian group to physically compel a Jew to eat matzah on the first night of Pesach. I'm not aware of any circumstances in history where Jews have been compelled by the by by a non-Jewish government to eat matzah to the point that Rabbi Mordechai Friedman of suggested that um, this might have been a torture device because there was a particular form of torture, I think, in the ancient Near East, which you required people to eat sharp-edged objects. And so maybe you just got, right, you just happened to be there eating you to eat matzah. I thought that this probably was a historical because matzah was probably soft then. And so it wouldn't have the, it wouldn't, it wouldn't accomplish this. But whatever it may be, right, Ravashi, for whatever reason, believes that what, that the message sent to Shmuel's father meant that if non-Jews, for reasons of their own, compel you to eat matzah, then you fulfill your obligation. Now Rashi throws in, even though you had no intention of fulfilling the mitzvah. So Rashi does not take advantage of the opportunity here to say, right, which we could have said. We could have said, you know what, Shmuel's, we could have said that the, the interesting question here is what happens if you don't have a choice about the action, all right, and the issue, right, and, that, and that's really what the challenge is, or what happens if you have intention not to perform the action, Rashi makes this a very generic case. It's just a case where you engaged in an action without religious intent, or at least without, or without the intent to fulfill a mitzvah. Okay, you're nonetheless Yosef. Rava comes along, and Rava says this: that from Avu Adeshmuel's statement, probably is understood by Ravashi. We say Zota Meret Hatokea Lashir Yatsa. Okay, so so what what um, Rava comes along, uh, Rashi had Rabbah in Brachos, but, but assume it's Rabbah, comes along and says that Shmuel's statement is not specific to the context of Masah, and it's not specific to the question of whether you're doing it under compulsion or not. Um, right? And we don't know whether Kafuah Parsiyah means that they physically stuff the Masah down your throat, or they point a gun at you and say you have to eat this Masah, right? that, which we would think makes all the difference, but for Rashi it doesn't make a difference. Because Rashi, all it is is an example of an action that you engaged in without this kind of very specific, I would say, religious legal legal intent. Let's say Yudei Chobah. Okay. So Rava says this is generalizable from the context of being compelled to eat matzah to the case of voluntarily blowing shofar for musical purposes or alternatively blowing uh, blowing shofar for anti-demonological purposes. Uh, to, to oppose to oppose demons. In each of these cases, Rashi says, right, Rava derives from Shmuel that you can be, that your Yotze, we don't require religious intent at all. That's what it seems. Right? So it sounds like what we're saying is that mitzvot are performed by the body or the body and the mind, but they don't have, right, there's no necessary involvement of the soul because there's no religious dimension at all. Okay, so now the Gemara says, Pshita, right? This, what Rava's statement is, is obvious. Right? Maybe even Kalvachomer from Shmuel, because Shmuel, Shmuel's father said, even under compulsion, it's okay. And Rava says that, um, that right, Rava's only saying that in a case where it's voluntary, but without religious motive. So here is what the, um, okay, again, we could, we could have broken out of it by saying that, like, let's leave it that way. Okay, so the Gemara, so Rashi says, Shita is the American. It's ob- right. Rava's statement follows obviously from Avodah Shmuel's because they're the exact same thing. Which the Gemara responds, Mahu 
What is it I would have thought, if not for Rava's extension? I would have thought, so the Gemara here says, Hasam echol matzah amarachmana. There the Torah says, eat matzah. So echol matzah is in single quotes, not double quotes, because there is no Pasuk in the Torah that says echol matzah. Um, right? So just like Amra Torah, whenever the Gemara says Amra Torah, it means it's not a quote. So here, the, right, so in Ben Shmuel's context of matzah, the Torah says, eat matzah, achal, and he ate. Okay, I'm going to read the Gemara first without Rashi. Aval hacha, but here, in Rav's case, so now our Gemara has zikron truaksiv, it says zikron trua, which is a pasuk, is asik be'almahu, and this person blowing shofar for musical purposes is only a misasik. Okay, so the text as we have it is, um, is really very interesting. It suggests, in a sense, that there are two unique cases. There's the case of matzah, where the Torah says, eat, and you ate. But here, is, right here, shofar is different. If I just read the sugya on its own as this way, I would think that what it meant was that matzah is generic. Right? The Torah says, do something, you did it. But by shofar, there's a unique characteristic. The unique characteristic is the word zichron. And the word zichron suggests that there's some kind of additional intellectual or spiritual component. And therefore, I would have thought that shofar requires a degree of, um, of intellectualism that, uh, or, 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 or soul condition that matzah doesn't. So Rava comes along and says, no, fundamentally, there's no difference between shofar and, and, shofar and matzah. And now the Gemara concludes from this, we derive from this that Rava holds mitzvot ain't srichot kavana. Rava holds that, mitzvot, that no mitzvah requires kavana at all. Okay, that's the simplest reading of the Gemara, and the simplest reading of the Gemara then seems to be that mitzvot are soul, mitzvot, for their efficacy, mitzvot do not require the involvement of your soul. Right, that's what the, that's the, that's the Pashup Shat. Um, mitzvot don't require, don't require kavana of any religious sort at all. Okay, now let's read the variant of this sugya that comes in, um, with, with Rashi. So Rashi says, uh, Some texts have achal koldu, which not not clear what that adds. So Rashi says, He derived benefit, and that's why you're not a misasek. So I would have thought the Gemara says that matzah is a unique case, not because there's anything about the word achila, which doesn't sound like it's which, which really doesn't say why should Achila be different than Lakicha or anything like that. But I would have thought that Matzah was the unique case because in the case of Matzah, the mitzvah involves giving your body benefit or pleasure. And somehow giving your body benefit or pleasure removes you from this category called Mitasek. We have to figure out what the category called Mitasek means, right? What is, what is Mitasek, so, right, which, which uh, prevents you from being Yosef? Okay. And then Rashi throws, right, then the Gemara says, but here by Shofar, um, he's a Misasik, right, he is a Misasik. And Rashi says, so the, the, the conclusion is, even though he's a Misasik, he fulfills the obligation, the mitzvot ain't srichot kavana, because mitzvot don't require kavana. So the way Rashi reads the sugya, um, right, the answer, right, the answer is we don't require anything. There's a havamina that, that it might be that mitzvot that involve giving you pleasure 
are different than mitzvot that don't? But the answer is that uh, no, right? That actually, even a mitasek, according to Rashi, is yotze. So now, what's a misasek? A misasek is somebody who blows shofar with the intent of producing music as opposed to the intent of fulfilling a mitzvah at all. Uh, what about a korei lahagia, right? We'll have to figure this out, right? Because a korei lahagia, we thought before, was somebody who, right, who and everybody agreed a korei lahagia was not yotze. A korei lahagia was somebody who was proofreading. So what's the difference between blowing shofar for music and proofreading, right? And does, and once, and is there a status below mitasek that's not yotze, right? Because according to, according to Rashi now, um, Rava holds that a mitasek is yotze. The Gemara says, Alma kasava rova mitzvah and sricha kavana, any kind of kavana, it seems. And then we move straight into our sugya. Straight into our sugya, right? Um, a sive, right? Maybe a bay, maybe it's supposed to be a bay, maybe it's not supposed to be a bay. All the, uh, all the manuscripts have a bay. Uh, I should also point out all the manuscripts leave out the word zikro and trua so that not, nobody seems to think that it's unique to shofar. Um, so a bay asks rova, really? But there's a Mishnah which says, so this is what Rashi told us back there, that this Mishnah appears to challenge the position of Rava who says So Rashi, in our first sugya, was really just reading this sugya into that. And Rashi right, so doesn't that mean kavana to be yotzevers? So mitzvot in srichot kavana right now means mitzvot don't require religious intent to the extent of intending to fulfill your obligation. And the Gemara says, right, so doesn't this Mishnah about Torah and Kriyat Shema contradict that principle? And the answer is no. Rava only meant that you have to have intent to read. So the Gemara asks the same question. The current, right? But he's, but he's reading. So how could he not have intention to read? And the Gemara gives the same answer to Kareh Lagia, but here Rashi gives a different interpretation of what Kareh Lagia means. Right? We'll go back. We'll see that Rashi, the first time we saw Rashi in the Sugi and Brachot, Rashi said Kareh Lagia meant, sorry, the Kareh Lagia you're reading the book to see if it has an error in it. You don't intend to read, right? So Rashi says, Kore is a situation where you're proofreading without intent to read. And we raise a whole set of possibilities as to what it means to read without intent to read. Uh, it could be that, um, which I think is what Rabbi Kornblad was suggesting, is that you're reading without intention to vocalize. Or it could be that you're reading without intent, right, without the belief without the awareness that what you're doing is engaged in the reproduction of sounds intended to convey meaning, right? It might be that you just think you're, right, you're doing the equivalent of making sounds. And that would be analogous, perhaps, to blowing shofar for music without being aware that the thing, that the sounds you're producing are, right, have significance in the context of a mitzvah, right? Because if I'm, pra- for example, if I'm practicing shofar so that I'm aware that what I'm blowing is a tkiah, Right? I'm not, I don't intend to fulfill the mitzvah, but I'm practicing right now to blow show from Rosh Hashanah, right? So I, but I, right, so I'm aware of the, that the, there is a, um, a meaning framework that can be imposed on the sounds I'm producing. This is a tkiah, this is a shvarim, this is a trua. So it might be that, that the definition of kare lagia, I would have thought meant I'm not, I'm not aware that I'm producing meaningful sounds. I think I'm just producing sounds. Or it could be that I'm not aware that I'm vocalizing at all. That would not be parallel to, to Tokei Lashir. So now we have to figure out, according to the sugya, according to the sugya over there, as Rashi read it, um, and right now we have, to, we have to put this all together, everyone agrees that Kore Lahagia is not Yosef. 
everyone agrees that proofreading, that proofreading is not enough, but blowing shofar to produce music is enough. So it has to be that proofreading is somewhere below the level of uh, somewhere below the level of um, of blowing of blowing music for shofar. So the simplest way of doing that is to say that karelagia means that you're vocalizing without being aware of vocalizing. And then we read the sugya saying the Gemara says you have to have intention to read. And he says, how, how could you read that intention to read? And the answer is you could have intention. You could you could read that intention to read if you were just proofreading and not even aware that you were vocalizing. Uh, and that seems like a plausible interpretation of what Rashi said up there, right? You're just reading, you're just reading, let me go back and look at it again. You're just reading it, um, my language is, to see if the book has a mistake in it, and you don't even intend to read. Right? So the interesting thing is that Rashi over here does not seem to adopt, adopt that interpretation. Rashi over here says, the Korela Hagia means, Afkriya Inkan, there isn't even reading here, what you're doing is you are making sounds, but confused sounds. So it sounds like right, what's, that for Rashi, what's going on is you're making sounds that have some relationship to the printed, right, to the words on the page, but you're not enunciating with sufficient clarity. So the interesting thing then is, right, that's a very hard reading of the sugya, because the sugya says you're Koreba Torah. And then you require kavanah, and it sounds here as if the right, the weakness here is only because you're not actually doing the physical action necessary. But if you could succeed in reading Kriyat Shema with proper enunciation, without being aware that you were reading, it sounds like according to Rashi that when we say mitzvot is richo kavana, what we mean is mitzvot require no kavana at all. All right, so Rashi is taking the extreme position. That mitzvot are purely a function of the body. There is no right. There's absolutely no relationship, no necessary relationship of the mind. All the mind, all that you require the mind to do is to put the body in proper position, and then right. And let alone right. Certainly, we don't require anything. Uh, we don't require anything for the soul. Right? So that's a very difficult reading. Um, that's a very difficult reading, but it sounds like that's the shot. In the sugya as it goes on, and then we'll see that there are um, ways in which this seems to the way that Rashi is reading it now seems to be the correct shot, because the next time the Gemara, the next line the Gemara says, "What about if right?" It quotes our, the mission we started with, right? Our our home mission now about hearing the shofar or the megillah. If you if you right on you need kavana, what do we need for kavana? So the Gemara says, "You need kavana to hear." What do you mean? You're hearing it. Why are you require a kavana? So the answer there is. You might think it's a donkey, but you have to know. So you have to know that what you're hearing is a shofar. So that sounds like there is a requirement of a certain kind of awareness because you heard it either way. The question is just did you hear a shofar? But we might say that case is different because it might be that hearing is a different kind of action than speaking. Speaking, you did the action of or blowing a shofar, let's say blowing a shofar. I blew the shofar, so that's what I did. There's, not, there's nothing I can. Be, there's nothing I did other that can be defined as anything other than blowing a shofar. But maybe listening isn't defined as hearing particular kind of sound waves. Maybe listening is by definition involves an act of interpretation. So hearing what I believe to be as a donkey is not the activity of hearing a shofar, but it's a little bit of a stretch. It's a little bit of a stretch. It seems to suggest 
that we require a certain kind of involvement of the mind of the mind with um, with the body. Okay, then the Gemara comes up with another uh, another Mishnah. The Mishnah says if the hearer had intention but not right. So up till now we've been dealing with a one body problem. A single person, right? A single person blows the shofar. A single person reads the Torah. Right? That's all. Right? That's our right. That was that was our primary question. We moved over here. So the right over here, there are two bodies, but the only one we were concerned with so far was right was the listener. Now all of a sudden we have a mission which says we require kavana on both parts. Okay. So the Gemara says, okay, why do I require both kavana parts? Well. I know what you're not, you'll say, if only the blower has intention, because the listener might think it's just a donkey, and we just said that's not okay. But what about, right, what about the, um, what about if the listener, if the listener blows shofar, uh, it has intention, but not the blower. So isn't that talking about a case where the blower is blowing, is blowing for, uh, for, for music, and that should prove, um, right, that should prove that you're not, you'll say, this should disprove Rabba, because it seems, it seems like that if I listen to a trumpeter, Blowing a ram's horn, I can't be Yossi no matter what my intent is, right? That's what it sounds like. It sounds like um, it requires the intent to be blowing shofar for the mitzvah. The Gemara says, so Rash, the Gemara, and this is where Rashi gets it from, is this weird idea. No, the, it, he's not blowing the shofar in the appropriate lengths. So that's a really weird end of the So again, it's very hard to know how to read it because what's the hava mean, right? The reason that I, the reason I'm not Yotze if I hear shofar blasts of insufficient length to be a tekiya is that I haven't heard shofar. Right? Why does it depend on kavanah at all? So this is a very very this is a very very weak answer, and the simplest explanation is that this is a sounds like it's a dispositive attack on 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 um, on Rava, and that really we should require at least the minimal kavanah. Um, of right of knowing that you're blowing shofar, now, I think there's a way to respond for um, for Rava, which I think could be very important. Which is uh, okay. Sorry, I think we we, we cut out for about thirty seconds. Um, everybody back? Okay, I guess I'm assuming you can all hear me again. Okay, thank you, Ari. Okay, so the um, let's get back to the right uh, right. So it's a very weird it's a very weird um, Response, which Gemara seems to have a conclude in the end that the only the only kavana we, that we require kavana for the mashmiya because otherwise he won't blow the appropriate length. That's very hard. I want to suggest for Rava that the what he, that maybe the transactional event of being yose through somebody else's activity requires a degree of of um, spiritual participation or, or intellectual participation by each of the parties. That a self-contained system does not. Okay, the Gemara then says maybe this can, maybe we move from mitzvot to averot. That's not that's not our issue right now. And it concludes with a story in which Rabbi Zera tells his shamash, "Have kavana and blow shofar for me," which seems to suggest that the blower requires kavana. And the Gemara then goes through the exact same um, proof text, but rejects them by saying that maybe uh, maybe there's a difference between a private party where you have to have specific intent. As opposed to a shliach tzibur, where you only have to, um, you only have to have intent um, for, in general to in general to um, to fulfill whoever whoever is uh, whoever is listening. Okay, this seems like an appropriate space to pause uh, for a moment.
I'm going to stop the share for a sec. Um, okay. So here's what I want. Here's what I want to. Um, what I want to. What I want to set, um, set up. We have here, I think, is a whole sugya, right? I want to argue that the, fundamentally the issue of mitzvot tzrichot kavana is about the um, is about the relationship uh, as to whether a mitzvah is fundamentally engaged in by the body, which is the extreme position, and we don't require the mind at all, or whether we require the mind, uh, which is the idea that you require some kind of intention for the act, but no religious intent. Or the extreme position, which uh, is not represented in the Gemara except as a havmina here, but we'll see is presented elsewhere, is the idea that mitzvot require spiritual participation and not just physical participation. Okay, I want to end with um, a sort of fancy piece to show you uh, why this kind of analysis is important, um, and then we'll see right if if there's interest, uh, we'll do the we'll engage in sort of the higher level, uh, specifically brisker analyses next time. So here's the. Um, Let's 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 do the fancy part. And then, as always, uh, those who haven't been on before, I'll stay and answer questions for as long as as, as long as it's necessary <coughs> after we're done. <coughs> okay, so let's let's do a little. We'll do, this is really an attempt at a certain amount of razzle dazzle to uh, to show how this analysis uh, makes a difference. Okay, so the um, you remember? I should show you before we get to the Ramah. You remember that Rashi threw in an interesting line in his analysis of the first sugya. Rashi said that um, the question about um, about where we said was a problem uh, with Rabbah. Then we said, no, no, it's different because, it, right, what, sorry, what, Rashi said, what would I think is the issue? Would I press? We had the issue. Um, where did we see that? We did see that, right? Didn't we? Here, here, sorry, here. Rashi said that I might think the difference in matzah and shofar is that there's a difference about mitzvot where you derive benefit from the action, and maybe the Gemara's Havaman is that deriving benefit from the action somehow makes you not a misasik, as opposed to ordinary actions which don't where you don't derive benefit that does make you a misasik. Okay, let's take a look at how the Raman passes like this, because again, one of the one of the ways in which you know the Salvatrics made famous in brisker thinking is to analyze the Rama because the Rama gives you a clearer occasion for, um, in a sense, for conceptual thinking because he only gives you outcomes. He doesn't, he doesn't require you um, to think through the literary framework of the Sugya. So here's what the Rama says. The Rama says, HaKareta Megillah below Kavana, lo yatsa. Read Megillah without Kavana, you're not yotze. What does that mean? If you're writing it or expounding it or proofreading it, so you're only yotze if you have Kavana, not if you don't have Kavana, okay? Very good. We don't know what the kavana, uh, what the kavana necessary is. When it comes to shofar, he says, "Amisasek shofar If you're blowing shofar in order to learn how to blow shofar, you have not fulfilled your obligation. And similarly, lo So here we're very clear that the Rama paskins that when it comes to shofar, if you are in the category called mitasek, you are not yotze, as opposed to Rashi who explained. Rava is saying that the whole point of Rava, the whole point of the statement, mitzvot in srichot kavana, is that a misasek is yotzek. Okay, and then the Raman comes along and says, achal matzah below kavana, kigon shonsu akam olistim lechol, So here we have an obvious problem, right? That our Gemara said that we moved from, from Shmuel's father's statement that if you eat matzah under compulsion or yotzek, to Rava's statement that if you blow shofar, um, if you blow shofar in order to sing a song, to, to play a song, you're Yotze. And the Gemara said those are the same things. 
it's almost obvious they're the same things. We even have to explain why it's necessary to move from one to the other. And the Rambam rejects the comparison. The Rambam paskins by shofar that you're not Yosef, or is he paskins against Rava, but he still paskins like Avu Adishmuel. So we could try to distinguish between, maybe the Rambam says, lead lamed, and maybe the lamed is worse than the shir. But he uses the word mitasek, so we'd have to claim he defines the word mitasek differently uh, than Rashi does in order to get there. So we don't want to go there yet. Okay, but we can try this, right? So that's the, the Magad Mishnah tries this. The Magad Mishnah says, V'dash l'divrei ha'omer mitzvot tzrichu kavana, mitasek kore kol zman she'ina mitkaven l'tkoat kiya shal mitzvah. So the Magad Mishnah says, what the Rama means by mitasek here is any time you don't have kavanas ha-mitzvah. So that is a very different definition than uh, than Rashi's, and that's an effort to reconcile the Rambam and say, no, really, the Rambam always requires religious intent. He never allows the mitzvah to be performed just with the body and the mind without the soul. Okay, then there's a second approach that the Magad Mishnah tries, because he's, he admits that this this seems to contradict the uh, Gemara, right? He says in Cain, heach pasakan shemitzvah kavana, right? And right over here, right? If he, if over, if if um, by by matzah he doesn't, right? If in Perik Lavi Hilchos matzah he says Achol matzah belokavana. So what's he doing saying here that you're a misas that you're a misasik and not yotze by shofar when by matzah you are? So it could be he says Ulayu sover shekena kevan sheina dam mosem masab vasebet kiatro for ela shmiya vafila tokea ikaro hashmiya lafichach tzarech kavana. Okay, so the Magid Mishnah says, I have an idea. Let's claim that ordinarily it's sufficient to have just the body involved in the mitzvah. But um, shofar is different because shofar, the fundamental mitzvah is listening. We paskin, right? We paskin the mitzvah shmia um, against the northern French position that the mitzvah is tkia. And listening is a uniquely intellectual act. Okay, so that's a very fine reading of the Ramam, although it's a possibility, as we said, that, was, that does not seem to have been really raised in the sugya by itself. So the Ramam still seems to be against the, um, against the Gemara to the point that the, um, that the Magi Mishnah concludes, The Magi Mishnah wants to amend the Ramam and say that maybe by Masa we should make it Yotze because he thinks that the, uh, sorry, that he should make it Lo Yotze, right? We should say he's not Yotzei Matzah either, so the Rambam can paskin consistently mitzvot shrikh kavana, because that's what the riff seems to paskin. And he says, I haven't seen anybody suggesting that it makes a difference which mitzvah. Okay, so the Nagi Mishnah thinks that the pshat in the Gemara, which he thinks should be pshat in the Rambam, is that the question of kavana and mitzvot is always a generic question. It shouldn't depend on the nature of the action at all. The Kesef Mishnah says something entirely different. It says, um, let's say that the difference between matzah and shofar is the following. Even by, though by shofar, you're not yotzi without kavana. Okay. I apologize. This is the first time I've had this issue with the, um, had this issue with, with, uh, with Zoom. Um, okay. I'll share the screen one more time. Um, Okay, so the um, right, so the, the Kesev Mishnah says that the, that it seems to him the correct solution is that shofar is unique. Uh, sorry, not that, sorry, it's not that shofar is unique. Sorry, is that matzah is unique, but matzah stands for a category. The category is 
a hana'a or benefit. Okay, which which so he right, he basically says the Rambam paskins like the Hava Amina, the way Rashi explained the Hava Amina of the Sugya. And the Rambam says that by matzah you don't require a kavana, you can eat matzah even under compulsion, because somehow deriving benefit from the right from the matzah replaces kavana. So this is a really interesting notion. How can how can deriving benefit from something replace um, replace kavana? Actually, this is not the um, right. This is not the Kesef Mishnah's own words. This is the psak of the. This is the explanation of the Ran. Okay, the, the Ran gives it a technical. The Ran did this because he saw that Rabbi Zera required his shamash to have kavana to be yotzehim, but by matzah, right? By matzah, the Gemara says you don't require kavana to be yotzeh. So it comes along the Ran and says the Ran says that Hana'ah is sufficient to replace kavana to be yotzeh. Okay, and I think it's very very important to get right now that for Everyone agrees that in the Rambam, there's no choice but to say that the kavanah that we're talking about is the kavanah to biyotze. Why? Because the Rambam said by, um, by that I said I think explicitly in one of these places that it's even though even though you didn't have intention right here. So the Rambam is clear that the kavanah we're talking about is intention to fulfill the mitzvah. So the Ram makes the claim that deriving benefit. Uh, deriving benefit from it, from the action can replace the intention to fulfill to fulfill the mitzvah. So the question is, can, how can this be? So there are many many explanations that people have come up with over the years to explain how it is that somehow deriving benefit from an object connects you to the mitzvah. But the problem at the end of the day, right? If we take our um, if we take our analysis that we're dealing with mind, body, and soul. It seems almost impossible to believe that deriving benefit from the action connects your soul to the mitzvah. You want to say it connects your body to the mitzvah. I can sort of see that. But to say that it connects your soul to the mitzvah seems to, right, particularly to connect your soul to the mitzvah in the same way that having intent to fulfill the mitzvah does, that seems almost impossible. So I want to argue, and that's the, the end of the shears or the, you know, of the razzle dazzle, that in fact, and this is the only time I say this about a Rishon, and it's very, very hard for me to do it. Um, but I think that this is simply a mistake. Uh, and so if anybody has an explanation of it, I'll be grateful to it, because to me, um, yeah, this, this is one of the things that has kept me up at night every once in a while uh, for years. Like, how could the Ron say this? But here, here's the simple, the simple explanation of why it's a mistake. So over there, by Matzah, Echol Matzah, 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 so let's talk about the, right, so what we're doing here is drawing an analogy between the kavanah necessary for mitzvot and the kavanah that is um, necessary for averot. So here's our scale by averot. If you're mitasik, right, and we could, for, we could say that mitasik is the same as ones or kvia, right? We could say that. Well, let's say that good, right? So if you do a if you do a mitzvah under compulsion, someone else forces you to. So right, so you don't have aver under compulsion. So then, no avera, right? You don't have to do anything. If you do an avera b'shogeg, meaning that you um, right that you're not aware that this action is a violation of the law, but you intend to do the action, right? So right, so that's what we call right. So to do an avera b'shogeg means to do an action with kavanah ha'maaseh with intention to perform the action, 
but with no intent to violate the law. That's a shogeg. And if you do an action bimezid, right, deliberately, right, then, right, that means you intend to violate, you intend to violate the, um, the Avera. Now, the punishment for Midasik is nothing. The punishment for a shogeg is a korban chatat. And the punishment for a mezid is whatever the punishment for violating the Avera bimezid is, right, kares or skila. So it seems to be very clear that when the Gemara says, and Rashi right, accurately reports the Gemara, Right, so, the, right, so Rashi says, what's that for? Chayav is chayuv chatat. Right, so if you get, the reason you're chayav, if you eat forbidden fats, or if you engage in forbidden sexual activities, you're chayav a chatat, because what? Because hana'ah, shakein nene, hana'ah makes you into a shogig, rather than a misasik, which means hana'ah replaces the kavanah ma'aseh. It involves, right, hana'ah gives you your intellectual involvement, right? It has your mind being involved in it because you have an experience. It's not just that you did it, you have an experience, not a religious experience, you have an experience. Whereas, um, there's, right, nobody suggests that because you enjoyed eating the, the forbidden fats, therefore you get skila, or right, or arayot, right? No one, su- no one suggests that benefit can replace the religious intent of sinning. So it seems to me, obviously, therefore, that the that all Hana'ah can do is replace Kavanah HaMaaseh, it can replace the, um, it, can, it can connect the body to the mitzvah the same way it can connect the body to the Avera, but it can't possibly replace Kavanah mitzvah. It can't possibly give you, right, create, create a connection between your soul and the mitzvah, and therefore you cannot um, possibly explain the apparent contradiction in the Rambam, where the Rambam Paskins that would require Kavanah mitzvah by Shofar, and set, right, as opposed to by matzah, where he does not require kavanah mitzvah, you can't you can't solve that by saying that hanaah is sufficient by matzah because hanaah, right, the analogy that he's deriving it from, which is right, which is by averot, is not right, is not sufficient. So at the end of the day, where we are at the end of this year is we don't have an explanation of the Rambam. Um, we know that the what seems to be like the default in the Gemara, the position of Rava, is that it's right, is that mitzvot require a body and some kind of minimal connection to the mind. Um, right, may, right, it might be that, that all, the mind, all the mind is needed to do is to make sure you do the right action. And if it happens you do the right action entirely mindlessly, that would be enough. It's just rare that you do the correct action mindlessly. It could be that at least you require a doing the action intentionally, right? So you have to, right, so you have to be aware that you're vocalizing and not vocalizing accidentally while you uh, while while you're uh, while you're proofreading, that might depend on whether we think the case of compel- compelling to eat matzah is when they stuff matzah down your throat, or whether they uh, they're just forcing you to do it. Um, but the um, but the um, by the end of the day, right, at the end of the day, the problem is right, nobody in the Gemara seemed to really believe, except as a havamina, that we require the soul to be involved. Yet all of a sudden comes on the Rambam. And the Rambam says that it's, it seems that in the case of Shofar, he requires the soul to be involved, although he does not in the context of, of Masa. So assuming that we have a second meeting next week, that's what I, what I want to do next week, is I want to uh, give an explanation of the Rambam and see how that ties into the whole idea of body and soul. And then I want to move into um, Rav Chaim Soloveitchik's explanation of, the, of apparent contradiction in the Rambam 
about um, about whether we require a kavanah by tefillah and plug it into all our categories and do a couple other things. And I hope that in in that um, in in the next year we can finish up the topic of kavanah and hopefully with a reasonably convincing um, framework, which sh- which shows that there's a that conceptual analysis in a, on a brisker level and conceptual analysis on a philosophic level are similarly engaged as we started by talking about it. So now we'll talk about, uh, right? So in the, um, in a, in a, a brisker framework, um, we would say that the, that, that one of the, that some of the distinctions I introduced on the side that were not explicitly in the sugya were whether the kavanah is a function of the state of the mind of the person or whether what kind of state of mind of the person we require depends on what sort of action is being performed. We'll introduce one other kind of categories. Maybe it only depends on, doesn't only depend on the kind of action, but also depends on the kind of mitzvah. For example, maybe I hold mitzvah tzricho kavanah, but only by mitzvah benadam l'makom. A mitzvah benadam l'chavero, maybe I don't require kavanah at all. Now, why should that be? Does that tell us something fundamental about the nature of the, of the, religious, of the religious ethical act as opposed to the religious ritual act? Uh, right. So all these are all these are simultaneously. I want to argue brisker and philosophic categories, and the fundamental thing we have to engage in is that we have a we have an underlying question, which is the relationship between action and we might say the relationship between physics and metaphysics, uh, right? Between uh, between action and things uh, that are imposed upon the action by something other than direct physical causality, and that is um, that's that's interesting. Uh, whether one is engaged in philosophy or in Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode.